Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And thank you very much for joining me in another episode of the Athletes Welfare Podcast. Today, I am joined by Claire Sadler. Throughout this conversation, myself and Claire discuss thriving under pressure, developing clarity, the impact of internal conflicts and recovering from psychosocial, emotional and physical injury the neurochemical thresholds that limit our physical performance, visually evoking fear, changing behaviours and recoding experiences, the simple power of simplicity, subconscious automated behaviours and environmental behaviours, plastic memories and truly what these are, the internal and external communication and prediction-making machines, content, process and structure. I hope you all love this conversation. Claire, welcome to the Athletes Welfare community. Before we delve into this discussion, here is a little bit more about myself and my podcast. This is the Athletes Welfare podcast with myself, Finn Kelly, where you can listen to insightful, inspirational, emotional, passionate and life-changing conversations with professional sports and fitness practitioners from all over the world. I knew from a young age that I would mature into a person that would thrive upon the development, support and guidance of others. For me, I now know what my calling is, and that is to develop welfare worldwide. Well-being is a massive part of my life, as I'm sure you can all tell by now, and it is even more of a percentage with this podcast. I love doing it. Everything about it is incredible and fascinating. Looking back now, I actually asked myself when I began this journey, I'm having welfare conversations anyway, so why should I keep great conversations to myself? For me, everyone can benefit, and we can all learn together. These conversations aren't about gaining listeners, getting rates and reviews, or earning money. This whole process is simply about making everyone aware of the importance of welfare within sport, but also in life. Your generosity with leaving rates, reviews, subscribing, or downloading will simply help my podcast reach more people like yourselves. That is success to me. Although this is called the Athletes Welfare Podcast, my regular listeners will recognise that a lot of the fundamentals within these conversations resonate traits, values, advice and experiences from across life in general, not just in sport. What I'm trying to say is that you don't need to be an athlete or even interested in sport to gain a heap of take-homes from these conversations. Look, I'm simply a 21-year-old recording over Zoom in my bedroom. So when I say this, you better believe me. Genuinely, without the support of others, I simply wouldn't be able to do this podcast. I thank my mum and everyone else at home for tiptoeing around the house every hour on a recording day, running to the door before the posting knocks or preempting when the phone might ring to even booking our dog into doggy daycare. I thank organisations such as Blokes, Tenzing, Mission, all of my conversations, the Open University, Sales Sharks, Rugby Club, all of these conversations and pre-conversations post the beginning of my podcast have supported me and guided me to where I am today. I appreciate all of your time taken to listen to these episodes. It means the absolute world to me. All I have left is to ask one thing. Please, please, please simply take five seconds right now to rate, review, download, subscribe or share this podcast so that I can really make a difference in this world by reaching many more listeners like yourself. Now, enough of me talking. Let's delve into today's episode. Hello, Claire. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you? I'm great, Finn. Thanks for hosting me. Thanks for having me. I'm good. 
more than welcome. I can't wait. I mean, we've just had some really good conversations just before saying hello, but we're going to try and pick all of those up and throw them into the conversation. But really quickly, obviously, I know exactly who you are. That's why we're having the discussion. But just give yourself a little bit of an introduction to the listeners about who you are and what it is that you do. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm Claire. I'm a single mum of three. I have a boy and two girls, George, Isabel and Ophelia, and uh, a great dog, Neo, a Siberian Husky. And um, I spend my days helping people be better at at what they want to do. Um, And that usually involves changing automatic or reflexive behaviours that most people think are outside of conscious control. So what does that mean? Well, that means that I work with elite athletes and their coaches. It means that I work with uh, senior leaders and emerging leaders in various sectors. So in blue chip businesses, in central government, um, in defence sector, in the creative industries. And then I also work one to one with individuals and sometimes families to help them um, with things that they're struggling with. So things that people maybe would class as more therapeutic issues. So anxiety, stress and trauma in all its disguises and how that shows up. So everything from phobias to OCD right through to the more serious experiences. So um, but I see my job as helping people to be clear about where they want to go, what they want to achieve. Uh, to help them communicate with other people and themselves, which is often the issue, and to connect um, internally and externally, because all of those things, to my mind, dictate and influence our well-being, our mental health and how well we perform. So just give me a little insight into what your understanding of athlete welfare is ultimately, and then we'll pick up on a couple of things that you've just spoken about. Well, to me, I can give you kind of two definitions, really. But what comes to mind first is welfare for me and athlete welfare is really about an individual or a group's ability to respond to what's happening in their environment. So to uh, mobilise or to demobilise, to be able to adapt to the changing conditions, because when issues happen or when amazing performances happen it's because that individual or that group is able to leverage their internal resources to match what's happening outside um, and that that can become across as quite a kind of clinical explanation but for me really when when someone is well they are enjoying their journey through life they're engaging they're connecting with what's important to them and the people that's important to them. And the result of that, the output of that is great performance, often consistent performance, well-being and good mental health. I love that link to how when somebody is well, somebody is happy, then ultimately their performance is going to be increasing. That's definitely something that I personally believe in. And it's definitely something that's been a reoccurring theme through the majority of podcast episodes that I've I've recorded it fits in with some of the questions at the end of the podcast and obviously the second question that I would ask you is how what you believe athlete welfare to be plays a part in what you do but I mean you've hit the nail on the head there with with a couple of things that you do so I think we should just ultimately delve into a few things that you've spoken about and how actually you change perspectives on certain situations I guess and I think I'm quite interested in a few things that you've spoken about. And one thing that you mentioned on the first message that that we kind of spoke about was the impact of internal conflict. So you've spoken about 
connections internally and externally. But let's just for a minute just just delve into the internal conflict and internal communication or conflict that could potentially become a detriment to to one's welfare. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's quite a broad and I find really interesting subject because it's something that's often glossed over. There's this assumption that you know if you're operating at whatever level in elite sport or even actually in other industries, that's the corporate world um, or not, that you're clear and you know what you're doing and, and you're moving in the right direction. But the reality is, is often very far from the truth. And I see a lot of people and I've worked with a lot of people who are attracted to the world of elite sport because it ticks other boxes and it helps them um, with certain patterns of behaviour. And what, what I mean by that is I've seen a lot of elite athlete, athletes who suffer from imposter syndrome. A lot of senior leaders I work with do as well. They have this deep-seated fear of being found out or failure, and that shows up in various ways. But um, when I'm talking about conflict, if I kind of take a step back, I'm talking about it could be a conflict between what we're aware of consciously um, and what we're not aware of, so unconscious processing. So it may be that, for example, I'm working with somebody at the moment who wants to get into professional sports, who's operating at a higher sort of amateur level. And they've done everything that they need to in terms of their S&C and their nutrition. They've got um, a professional athlete to mentor them, but they knew that there was a block and they've identified that block as psychological or mental development. And they want to do more. They want to go all the way. They want to be, travel the world and you know represent the country. And that's consciously their goal. That's what they're aware of. But actually in working with them, there's a lot that sits underneath in terms of unconscious processing, ties to family, not wanting to be away from home, that stems from earlier experiences, some of which they're conscious of, some of which they're not yet, that means that, that actually they're holding themselves back. So that's what I mean by one type of conflict. On the one hand, I really want to go and play rugby or football or swim for my country. I want to go to the Olympics, I want to win a medal. But actually, I also want to stay close to my children or my family. And, and that kind of conflict can cause a lot of issues because people self-sabotage. But then you can also get the very, what I would call, nitty-gritty types of conflict, where um, if someone's had an accident or they've been injured, something I've talked a lot about recently, or they've suffered a trauma, it kind of leaves a metaphorically a program in the system where the nervous system goes, do you know what? Last time we did this, we got hurt. We're not doing that again. So consciously, if we take rugby, for example, somebody may want to hit the tackles hard, hit the rock hard, but somehow they hold themselves back. Somehow their body's not in the right position. They have all the technical knowledge, the experience, they've got the talent, but somehow it's not working quite right because actually when they were quite young, they got a bad concussion. Or they saw someone else suffer an accident. You know, so for example, I worked with somebody years ago who did a lot of trampolining, whose friend had a very bad accident, broke their collarbone and had an external break in their arm. And that experience effectively traumatized this other person and it affected their ability to progress in that sport. Once that was resolved, the blockage wasn't there anymore. So conflicts can show up of that type as well. And then you've also got conflicts in terms of, well, 
they've got stuff going on outside of my sport with my family, with my spouse, with my partner, with my ex-partner. It's a very common one. I don't know, with my sex life, with um, how I relate to who I am as a person, my sense of identity, who I think I am versus what I do. And the thing that I find quite interesting is there's been research done that shows that that kind of internal conflict not only has an impact on our ability to focus our attention. So if you think of attention like a spotlight, you want the ability um, when you operate at that level to be able to shift and focus your attention on what's important at the drop of a hat. Yet so often our attention is divided. So people often talk about, well, I'll just put it out of my mind. But actually the research shows that that doesn't actually help in fact, it does the opposite, it impedes. And the other thing is that when it comes to physical um, attributes and physical strengths, it can actually reduce your ability to use your muscles to, to, to the, to the um, extent that you would normally be able to do if you're not conflicted. So it can physically reduce strength. It can physically reduce speed. So all of those conversations about, well, I'll just forget everything get on task and I'll be fine. That's all well and good. But actually, you're still, if you're divided and you're still conflicted, you're still not operating at the level that you could be. And it's a sliding scale of, is that just a, does that just show up in terms of, well, I wasn't as fast this time. You know, when I look at my speed on the pitch or on the track, I'm three or four seconds or microseconds down. Or it could even be, do you know what? I missed the free kick that meant that we lost the game or I was distracted. So I got a yellow card or I did a flyer and that cost me, you know, because I've done two already and now I'm out for competition in terms of swimming. Sorry, I'm not quite sure um, who follows what. <laughs> so it's a, a really complex and really um, fruitful area in terms of helping people with their performance but also their welfare, because there's a difference between short-term acute issues that show up and how they impact on our nervous system and our welfare and our mental health, and long-term chronic stress on the system, and I hesitate to use that word for reasons that we can talk about in a little bit, if you like, um, and the wear and tear that that creates and how that shows up and causes problems in other areas. And both of those things can have a huge impact because both of them can contribute to the possibility of injury and how well people recover and also people's state of mind and therefore their mental health and their overall welfare. And then when you zoom right back out, because the way our nervous systems interact, the impact on the group or the team or the squad as a whole, uh, because stressed nervous systems recruit other systems into stress. So it's quite a lot there. <laughs> no, I like that. And I've, I've just been thinking about ways that I can kind of throw something back at you, but I'm going to try something a little bit new and I'll just give you a little bit of an insight into okay. experiences as an athlete and then what I do and then yeah. I'll ask you the question. So I, I started playing rugby at 16 and just after my 18th birthday, I retired from rugby. I had, I mean, I'm very well known for being injury prone and picked up an awful lot of injuries, but 
three main for, for me, and you spoke about them before, were concussions. I had three really bad concussions resulting in ambulances, hospitals, mm. all sorts of different stuff, missing school, missing exams, not being able to read, not being able to see things. And mm. that's ultimately what led me to retirement. And it's been three years now where I've not played a rugby game. And mm-hmm. just in, in a perspective of if I was going to go back, I'm not going to go back because for me, things are a lot more important than just a game and, and mm-hmm. my head and all of that stuff. But you spoke there about you've got you've got limits, you've got internal barriers and conflicts where you could have potentially had something in your own experiences that have traumatised you in a way and not necessarily wanted to put you in back into certain situations. So if I was looking to wanting to go back at some point, but the trauma for me was my experiences with concussions – what would conversations, what would the processes look like between us two if, say, I wanted to come back and perform at a higher level, but all there was in the back of my mind was concussions and all of the stuff that relayed from that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, the first thing is I, I would want to speak to you to understand how's that showing up for you? How is it a problem for you? Because I can make all kinds of assumptions based on my experiences and the other work that I've done. But what's key is what's your experience? And what I mean by that is, is it difficult to focus and concentrate in terms of paying attention to what it is that you want to do? Are you getting flashbacks? So I've worked with athletes that have auditory flashbacks, you know, people who've, who rehear their leg or their limbs breaking when they go back into the same situation. Some people can get um, visual flashbacks flashbacks as well and they're not able to actually process or see what's happening and some of it might just be more under the radar they just feel uncomfortable and they find that they can't follow through so the first thing would be okay what's your experience because what I need to do is I need to understand how are you doing what you're doing now in terms of process remember most of this will be unconscious but it's my job to highlight that and I've been doing this a long time now 22 years I think I've got it down (laughs) pretty well but always got more to learn Um, because part of that process is me understanding where is it best what's the tipping point how best can I intervene yeah Um, and I think at this point it's really important to clarify something about when I talk about trauma because when I say that word trauma people always think of the worst possible things so they think of violence they think of horrific accidents they think of abuse they think of death destruction horrendous industry and uh, injury sorry and trauma definitely includes those things but trauma can also be developmental and it can be do you know what it's just too much too soon too fast I'm overwhelmed I just don't know where to go And people often discount that. And that's just as tricky and um, impeding and challenging as the former. So I think it's important to make that distinction. So part of what I'm looking and listening for when I'm speaking to you is what's actually going on, what's coming up. So I'm listening to language. I'm listening to, to breathing. I'm looking at people dilation I'm looking at skin tone all of these indicators that let me know when someone's shifting from one state to another then the other thing I want to know is okay if this is where you are now where do you want to be how will you know when you've got what you want because that gives me some very real concrete information as to what we need to get to 
And then my job in between is essentially to draw from all the different pots, if you like, that I have access to. So the neuroscience stuff, the trauma stuff, clinical hypnosis, the somatics, um, and body cognition, all of these different areas to pull together what are the right interventions for you now. Because if we work together in another two months' time, what might be right for you then is different because people are always changing and adapting. So most interventions, whether it's training or it's traditional therapy, essentially what people do is they chop up the client's experience and they fit it into a model. What I do is the other way around. I understand how change happens in terms of neuroplasticity, how we make new connections and what's needed. And I pull together the tools to help you do that. But as far as you're concerned, it's just a conversation. It's literally just a conversation. And I may ask you one or two questions that are a bit unusual. And I may ask you some questions that confuse you. And that's okay. Yeah. So in terms of the process from a client's point of view, it's quite simple. It's quite straightforward. But what's kind of going on underneath is much more complex. So hopefully that answers your question at one level. <laughs> You're probably sitting there going, yeah, yeah, that's great. But what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean, Claire? <laughs> Part of my job is to recode the experiences that have been consolidated in your system so that they don't cause a problem anymore. And what I mean by that is we all respond to external triggers. You know, when people come to a red light, they break. They don't go, oh, I'm going to take my foot off the accelerator and put it on the brake. They don't have time to think about that. They've already done it. The behavior's already happened because it's reflexive. And this is what our nervous system likes to do. It likes to automate things. Um, and often the issue is that what it automates is not necessarily what we want to do. But we respond to those sensory triggers in the environment with the behavior that is encoded, if you like, if you want to think of it that way. Slightly more complex, but it's a simplistic way of thinking about it. The other way of thinking about it is that our nervous system, our brain, the brain in our head is a prediction making machine. So when we go through life, we are constantly taking in inputs of information temperature, pressure, movement, body position, auditory information, visual stimulation. And they're all translated into electrical currents that at some point come back to a central part of the brain and we make sense of them. But the reality is, and I think it's fascinating that we can actually do this, we know that we respond before we've had time to translate that information. And if anybody's interested, they can go and look at Moran Cerf's work. He's an amazing neuroscientist. He's done some fascinating stuff around this experiment and looking at questions of consciousness and free will and all of that good stuff. So how does that work then? So if we're already responding before we've got the information, what are we actually responding to? But what we're responding to is our past experience that we've constructed inside. So we anticipate what we think is going to happen. And this becomes really important when people want to progress and change and learn. Because if what they're responding to is trauma, probably the output that they're going to get is not really what they want. So in your case, if what you're responding to is memories of, you know what, when I went into the situation, I got a bad concussion, couldn't see, 
was probably in a lot of pain. I was disorientated. I'm sure there was some emotional stuff going on as well. Your body is going to respond in a particular way. And I can see by talking to you, because obviously the listeners can't see you because you're not being auditory, I can see straight away that you've got some stuff going on there. I'm not going to ask you about it because that's not appropriate, but I can see that. Yeah. Because when you think about going into that situation, there's some automatic responses, there's some reflexive responses. So my job is to isolate triggers for those and to basically wire them up to different circuits so that the triggers are still there, but they you respond differently. So you can think of it in terms of if you have a light switch that turns on this set of lights and suddenly you want them to to be able to dim them or put on a different set of lights, no amount of talking to the switch and saying, right, this time it's going to be different, it's going to work until the connections are made and then the circuit's wired differently. And that's kind of essentially the lot, a lot of the work that I do. Now, with something like concussion particularly, there's other stuff that needs to be taken care of in terms of how you process, in terms of how you respond to information. Um, and some of that is outside of my area of expertise. Some of it sits within. So and what I mean by that is when it comes to trauma, often there are other things that need to be resolved. And I say trauma in the broadest terms of the experiences. So it's not just a, a connect this to that and away we go, because there's often a, a secondary gain in there as well. Usually something around not looking stupid or not being hurt or even just plain surviving when it comes to you know some of the more serious sort of um, cases that I've worked with. So there's a lot to consider there. But essentially, as I said before, as far as you're concerned, it's just a conversation. Hey, everyone. I'm sorry to interrupt this incredibly passionate, insightful and educational conversation, but I just want to show you how to become part of this movement and join the Athletes Welfare Pod community. Supported by Blokes and the Ted Senior Foundation, the Athletes Welfare Podcast needs you. Yes, you, right now, without hesitation. There are two things that I desperately need you to do as I'm speaking. For me to know how many people are appreciating these conversations, I would love it if you could all share with me a screenshot or photo of how you are listening to this podcast and tagging us on social media at the Athlete Welfare Podcast or even myself at Finn Kelly. Secondly, it would be phenomenal if you could all take five seconds right now I mean, only five seconds to rate and review this podcast so that I can begin my long-awaited climb on the suggested podcast lists. Now, enough of me rambling on again. I'll let my generous guests get back to talking, as I know it is them you're listening to, not me. Enjoy this conversation. Does that answer your question or have you got more questions now? <laughs> I've got so many questions, like this massively, but... I was going to pick up on it before you just spoke about it there. As far as I'm concerned, it's just a conversation. And for me, that is unbelievably powerful. It's just you're you're thinking about all of these different factors and you're thinking about ultimately how you can help these people then get over barriers, traumas, whatever it is that potentially limit their performance. But for the other person, it's it's simply a conversation. You might just throw a couple of weird questions at them, but all they've got to do is answer them truthfully. And then off the back of that, you're then able to help them as much as possible. I find that incredible. It's interesting that you say that all they've got to do is answer them truthfully. That's not necessarily the case. 
because I get as much information when people don't necessarily tell me the truth than when they do. So it doesn't really matter. All I need is a response because there may be reasons why they're not telling me. They may not be able to tell me at all. So um, which brings up this whole kind of interesting area for me around content versus process and structure. A lot of the certainly the active military guys that I work with and ex-military and some central government, they're not allowed to tell me the content. They can't. So I have to do the work content free. And that is looking at processes and structures in terms of the patterns of behavior. And that can be even more powerful because if you think about it, if you're looking at a pattern, it takes so many, it includes so many more other instances. So it's not just I'm struggling at, at, at the contact with the tackle or I'm struggling at the ruck or I'm, you know, fighting for possession, finding it difficult, fighting possession at the line out for talking about rugby. It encompasses so much more. And part of the way that our nervous system works through generalization, so taking an experience in one context and applying it across lots of others, you can begin to see how you could really leverage that and kind of glide on the natural tendencies of the nervous system to then take care of so many other things as well if I'm working in terms of resolving issues. And similarly, if I'm working in terms of optimizing performance, you can do the same thing. So one type of feedback I often get from clients is, oh my God, you know, one, I didn't realize you could do this so quickly and so easily. I don't know what you did. You just talked to me and somehow my brain, I just can't do it that way anymore, which is great. But two, do you know what? It's really weird, but this other thing that was bothering me is now sorted as well. And that can be really concrete. So for example, if I take an example outside of sport, I worked with somebody um, earlier on this year who had a really bad phobia of exams to the point that they had special dispensation not to do some of their oral exams. And this person would almost have a complete shutdown, the panic attack, and was really struggling. I only did one session with them, and that's sorted. It's resolved. It's not an issue anymore. In fact, they actually like doing their exams now, and they requested to be able to do their, their German exam, their oral exam, which shocked their teachers and their parents. But also, funnily enough, their fear of heights got cleared up as well. And we didn't do anything specifically about that. But what I did do was I put some stuff in the structure that meant that I helped them to generalize that out. Yeah. So I've seen that before in other areas. So a couple of years ago, I worked with somebody who had hay fever. And you might be thinking, what? (laughs) It's not always the case, but sometimes, sometimes allergies can be like phobias of the immune system and they're almost like a coping mechanism which was the case for this particular person and I again did one session it's a long session it was breakthrough session cleared up hay fever and then a travel sickness went away as well which is quite interesting but take an example in sport you know tackling specifically you know someone else I need to go take someone down do you know what my rucking's improved actually you know I'm much happier in the line out now and actually, I'm so much calmer at the beginning of games. I don't really know why. So there's so much that you can do. And it's not just about that one particular instant. You know, part of my job is to be able to zero in on the one thing that the person is asking me for help about. Or the coach has said, you know what, I'd really like you to help them with this. You know, their time management, their organization's an issue, whatever it might be. 
or you know they want to develop kicking off the left foot when they're a right foot kicker um for example so thinking about that one context but also then zooming right out and thinking about you know where else in their life might this be useful how can this be helpful to them because going back to what we talked about in the beginning to my mind that's how you develop resilient clear connected people and that's what delivers not only great performance not only you know well-being but welfare in general so i don't really know where to start to be honest with you because there's so much that like just really interests me but i want to so obviously one of the points as well that you, you spoke to me about were the neurochemical thresholds that limit physical performance and i'm just yeah. before we move on to that like this podcast for me is very much about helping people realize the importance of welfare within sport and quite a lot of that comes back to like that buzzword of being vulnerable and just and talking and, and being building connections with a lot of people which then can can have so many different byproducts to that and for me like if i can't i'm going to try something but if i can't be vulnerable on a podcast talking with yourself then how can I expect other people to be vulnerable? Like I need to set the standards. I need to set the tone for then other people to, to mm. work with that. So earlier you mentioned that when we were talking about the concussions and my own experiences that you, you could see a few different things. And if, would you feel comfortable just delving into that a little bit? Because for me, I've never, I've never spoken openly about any of my concussions or anything like that only when I'm in elite environments and I'm talking to academies but like obviously to to a certain extent you don't have to like whatever but I don't mind talking about it at all but I think you want me to do a session on the podcast <laughs> no maybe not <laughs> but like just touch base on maybe just because I, I feel if I'm a little bit more vulnerable, then people who are listening will be a little bit more vulnerable. So yeah. don't, please don't feel like you don't have, you can't say anything to me just out of it. Okay. But like, okay, that is really kind of. That. And then, and then we'll, and then we'll talk about the neurochemical thresholds. Okay. Well, when I ask you, when you think about the experiences that you had when you were concussed, yeah, you just did it again. What happens? And you don't have to tell me content. You don't have to share content, but there's a shift, isn't there? There's a definite shift there. I can see that. And, and I can see that in terms of your breathing, your skin tone, the way you freeze for a moment, because it's not pleasant, and, and a bunch of other stuff as well. And that tells me that um, simplistically, there's stuff, if you like, whatever that stuff might be, stored or, or in your system. So your body, and I say your body hesitantly, because really there's no separation between mind and body you know the spinal cord goes all the way down in, into the body it's more like an amoeba span there's a continuous feedback loop but in terms of physically what you're doing and the way you're responding your body's responding like you're being concussed again now that's what's happening and I would imagine I won't ask you but I would imagine if I asked you the right questions you would tell me that and, and you would go deeper into that state. And I don't want you to do that at the moment because it's not pleasant. Yeah. So just take a big step back. Yeah. Take a big step back and see yourself in the picture that were in your head in the film and press pause like like you've got a like you press pause on a video on iTunes because that feels better, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So so that tells me that there's stuff there. And and that stuff has nothing to do with 
not being resilient, not being mentally tough has nothing to do with that at all. It's simply a function of our nervous system. So one of the things that I know from my work in trauma is that, and Bessel van der Kolk talks about this a lot in his amazing book, The Body Keeps the Score. Um, you know, Gabor Matt also talks about it, Peter Levine. They talk about how trauma is stored in the body. And I don't mean literally, you know, it's in your little finger. It's, it's a metaphor. <laughs> but we, we try to um, complete those patterns that we weren't able to when those experiences happened. So often when it comes to things like uh, people who've been attacked or who've been in abusive relationships, they will continue to try to, they often get themselves in similar situations because the body's trying to complete the circuit and get them out. Yeah. And a similar thing can happen with physical or mental or psychological traumas in sports as well. So people will often make the same mistake or repeat the injury not always, but do something similar because that cycle is almost trying to complete. And it's a bit like, if you think of it in terms of movies, which isn't always, it's a bit like the movie's on repeat and they can't get past it. It's stuck. So part of what has to happen is metaphorically, it needs to be reconsolidated. It needs to be something that happened that's behind you versus (gasps) it's happening now. Yeah, it's a very different experience. And this whole thing of, well, I'll I'll talk about it. I will discuss it. I'll share my feelings. You know, I'll, I'll maybe see a counsellor or a sports psychologist. That can be helpful, but it doesn't necessarily do what needs to be done to consolidate that experience, to put it behind the person, metaphorically, so it no longer is an issue for them. But the great thing about human beings is we've got this thing called neuroplasticity. They've got this ability, and they're different types of neuroplasticity. They've got this ability to change our experiences based on how we respond in the present. Yeah. So people tend to think of memories as like books on a shelf. I'll take down that book, have a quick flick through it, and then I'll put it back. But actually, that's not true. Every time you access a memory, it becomes plastic. There's an ability for it to be changed which means that the state that you're in when you access it has just as much influence on your experience of it when you think about it again as um, what originally happened when you had that experience. And that's one of the reasons why therapy and change works, because we have this ability to recode that, to reconsolidate it. But essentially, what I'd be looking to do is change those experiences and responses so that had we had the conversation, yeah, and this was no longer an issue for you and you were on the other side of it and you'd be the way you wanted to be being, you'd be being different. And I'm sure if you took a moment to fully consider that now, you'd have a sense of what that would be like, right? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And that's different to your current experience, yeah? Yeah. So my job would be to reconsolidate to recode call it what you like that experience or those experiences so that they are what was not what is does that make sense yeah i think that's really interesting i I, yeah i think i think a big part of it is definitely experiences like like you just said is you 
you only know it as that experience because you've not changed it, you've not adapted it or sculpted it into something else. And I think mm-hmm. is that kind of what you're saying is I take an experience and I mold that into something else that I can then make sure it's behind me ultimately. And it's you right. can you can do, but most people don't know how to do that. Okay. And most people focus on the content of the experience, not the structure and the process. So for example, that you know movie that you froze it's in color and it was quite big here wasn't it yeah and you saw what you felt what you experienced through your own eyes you were associated effectively Mm. versus if you see that experience from up above yeah do you feel that little shift it's not much but it's a little shift it's different yeah so how we structure our internal experience because it's our internal experience that we respond to it's our construction of the world outside remember it's what we anticipate what our nervous system is anticipating is going to happen that we respond to not what's actually outside and that's why when it comes to situations of pressure you know intense pressure that there are people who are able to be okay and not be stressed and then there are some people that that can't do that because it's not about what's going on outside. It's about what's going on inside. And most people don't know what buttons and levers to push metaphorically to keep themselves in the optimum state and to change that internal construction to their advantage. So their nervous system works for them instead of against them. They just know, oh my God, when I think about this, I feel awful. I feel sick. Or do you know what? i Bloody well, did it again when we played New Zealand. (laughs) Same thing, every flipping time. Or, you know, I saw the ref and I just lost it. Not that I'm thinking about anyone in particular at this point in time. (laughs) I just think it's it's really fascinating, like, how all of it... So I remember when when you sent that first message and I read through all of it and there was definitely some things in that that... I hadn't I didn't really understand and did a bit mm. of research, but I find it really interesting just having this conversation now where all of it there's there's a link between all of it. So we've spoken to me from my perspective, there's a link between all of it. So we've spoken about the impact of an internal conflict and then we've now like kind of touched base on how that can potentially limit physical performance. And if I'm speaking from my own experience again, I've got my own internal conflict of the concussions occurring and how that ultimately then impacts my own performance which for me has impacted no performance whatsoever complete like zero participation and I think that's really fascinating to understand not the psychology but the science behind that I think that's quite fascinating because the tendency is for people to turn it on themselves oh I'm weak yeah I'm not I'm not you know I wasn't good enough I I'm you know I, I I made mistakes or and that's very it's very rarely the case but as human beings, we're really good at that. We're really good at getting a great big stick and beating ourselves up and then compounding the issue. And then we wonder why we're not able to move forward. So I think the other thing to to sort of try to clarify for listeners is I, I probably gathered I love the nuts and bolts. I'm really fascinated, have always been fascinated with what drives people's behavior what makes one person amazing at one thing and you know how can and, and someone not so good how can two people have the same experience and, and come out of it totally differently I'm fascinated with that and people have always come to me with their problems they've always asked me for help 
right from a very young age. So I'm, you know, this kind of lifelong love affair with behaviour and everything. But for people who maybe don't have that fascination, you don't necessarily need to know all this stuff. There are some core things that you can do to help your welfare, to help your mental health, to help your performance in the same way as there are core drills or skill builders that you do for a particular sport. And then layered on that is the more complex in terms of mechanics kind of work that I do. So people don't have to jump in at the deep end. They don't have to go and read a neurology textbook to understand all this stuff. It can be as simple as learning some breathing techniques and and before everybody rolls their eyes and goes, oh my God, breathing, you know. (laughs) That's only one of the buttons or levers that you can use to mobilize or demobilize your system because that's really what we're talking about and so it doesn't have to be complex it can be really simple and a lot of the athletes that I work with if they were listening to this they would say god I don't know any of that and I don't need to know because just what do I what do I do in this situation how what do I what works on the pitch for me what works in prep what works in rehab And it's as simple as that, because the other part of my job is making sure that people understand what works for them rather than the off the shelf tool, because that's what makes the difference, that individualization. Um, And that also links into what we started to talk about before, which is that neurological cutoff um, that everybody always thinks is physical, but it's not. I think it's interesting. Right. Okay. What we're going to do, Claire, is we're going to go into the quick fire round of questions that I ask every guest at the end of the podcast. But just before we do that, I'm going to ask if you want to record a part two of this conversation because I've got so much <laughs> more that I want to ask. So would you? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd be up for that. Yes. Let's do that. Why not? <laughs> let's do it. Why not? Exactly that. We've got a lot. I've got a load more that I can ask. I've got a lot of pieces of paper here. So. Let's let's do it. We'll we'll get it done at some point. We'll get it booked in. But that's just so people know that we're doing it. But first question: okay. Is it possible for athletes to be happy whilst attempting to maximise their performance potential? I think it is. But I would clarify what I define as happy, because I think there's a big difference between loving the journey and the direction that you're moving in versus the milestones along the way. Because, you know, if you go to the Olympics, you don't get gold or you don't medal. That might be one of the milestones that you would be really happy with. But actually, the experience of going and what that means to you, what that, what you gain from that, the journey and the direction is just as important. And I think it's really critical to separate out the two, not just for well-being, but also at a, a neurochemical level linked to what we just talked about, because it makes a big difference. I love that. And can athletes achieve perfection? <laughs> well, you see, I think, well, what is perfection? Because perfection's a, it's a, you're taking a process and you're freezing it for a moment in time. But the reality is that time doesn't stand still. We're always moving forward. We're always changing. So to me, there's always more to learn. There's always more that can be done. There's always more that in, in ways that people can be developing. So if you define perfection as the pinnacle then no because where do you go from there but if you define perfection as the process then yes definitely but they're slightly different things to my mind <laughs> interesting how important is talking Claire very very important but sometimes people don't use their words to talk 
people communicate in non-verbal ways that are just as important. But for me, talking is one way to connect and connecting because, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a brain health need. We, we need to connect. It's critical. Uh, so like if we were to rephrase that and just say how important is communication as a whole rather than just talking, would that be, it, would, it, that include, would that include everything? Yeah, to, to me it would because communication is verbal and nonverbal. It's conscious and unconscious. And if we don't connect and we don't communicate, there are very serious consequences in terms of well-being, mental health and performance. And a lot of people have experienced that over the last couple of years with COVID um, and have other experiences in, in different aspects as well. So to me, communicating... And the ability to do that, not only from your own standpoint, but to be able to stand in someone else's shoes, to be the observer in between, to have those different points of view is so important. And that works equally well internally with parts of yourself and your sense of identity and who you are and the bits you like and the bits you don't, (laughs) as it does with external communication. It's all of that is important. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, right. What are your three go-to fundamentals for creating a strong, beneficial and positive welfare for athletes that you work with? Know yourself, you know, trust your trust yourself and and listen in all senses of the word to what your body or your system is telling you. I think that's really important. Be open minded and be uh, and and go out and seek you know connections and talk to people and find out things be willing to learn but also (laughs) be willing to not know long enough to learn something new because our tendency is is to want to close things down to find the answers but actually particularly when you look at learning you know inductive learning when there is no restriction is so important so sometimes being able to just sit with something long enough and not know the answer is the absolute key and I've found that personally really beneficial and also I know a lot of the people that I work with have as well that's awesome and what is your one go-to source of information to help athletes realize the importance of their own welfare if you can give one that is oh crikey um there's lots of great external resources but then I would probably go back to do you know what go inside and what I mean by that is turn your attention inside and listen to what your system's telling you because most people even if they're not very good at it they do that even if it's just for a few seconds they get new information they get information that's important because you know when something's not right people do most of the time we do this and for the people that can't see I've got my fingers in my ears and I've got my eyes closed we ignore it but actually I truly believe that everybody has within them what they need to succeed and to move forward and sometimes it's just a case of helping them get in touch with that so I would say you know trust yourself listen to yourself in the broadest sense of the word and that will help you so much because when you're able to do that and you're comfortable with what's on the inside, even if it's stuff you don't like, it's so much easier to connect on the outside. And one thing for me, although we speak quite significantly about the athlete and the sport side of things, is actually the traits and, and stuff like that we can transfer from sport into life and life into sport. And obviously you work in in all sorts of industries, all sorts of focuses, but 
what bit of advice can you give to somebody who is outside of sport that may potentially be confronting a barrier or a setback or a challenge that they're really struggling with? What what bit of advice could you give to them if they're just sitting here listening to this now? I would say forget the content because there's some really hideous situations, very stressful situations going on. Go back to your body and find a way to slow down, whether that's breathing, whether that's visualisation, but it, it, think of it in terms of mobilising and demobilising, speeding up versus slowing down. Because your state, your state of mind, dictates what you're capable of doing. You can think of it like you want to drive from here to Edinburgh. You've got to put the key in the car and the ignition. You've got to turn the car on and you've got to put the car in gear. If you try and pull off in fifth gear, you're not going to get anywhere. And if you try and drive at 70 miles an hour in first gear, you're going to do some serious damage to the engine. Yet most of the time, that's what we do with our state. So and people focus on the outside and the content and trying to resolve that, the situation outside. Go back inside first. What state do you need to be in? And how are you going to get into that state? And as I was saying earlier, there are various tools, buttons and levers that you can use to press. Breathing is a great one um, when you know how to do it properly, <laughs> which might sound like an odd thing to say. But when you slow down sufficiently and when you're in the right state, what's outside and those pressures and those challenges will look very different because it's not what's outside that dictates your response. It's the state that you're in internally that dictates your response. Nice. Incredible. And lastly, Claire, who do you nominate for a future episode of the Athlete Welfare Podcast? I would nominate, I would nominate Simon Amor. Why's that? Because I, I know Simon pretty well, um, and I think he has a lot uh, to offer in terms of his perspective. I worked with him at the England Sevens. I worked with him when he coached the Women's Sevens, and we've been in touch um, on and off various times over the years as well. So uh, I like the way Simon thinks, and I think he has. I think he would have a lot to say in terms of the questions that you would ask him. Nice, that's awesome. I think he's awesome. I love I love following stuff he does. So that's cool. That's a great nomination. That is great. Right, let's like for everybody listening, we are one hundred percent going to record another one because that was. Awesome. <laughs> We're definitely going to do it. So we'll off recording. We'll sort that out. But Claire, for now, like part one of this has, has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I've, I've really enjoyed it.